Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. Again, every Sunday, 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. You can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421 in Madison. That's 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. If you're familiar with the area, we're just 2.2 miles north of the Old Jefferson Proving Ground entrance right on Highway 421. I want you to know this morning, though, that, that we would love to have you come join us in person Sundays at 10.30 a.m. or Sunday nights at 6 p.m. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it is my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. Good morning. I have a confession to make. One of my pet peeves is when people don't turn their high beams off when they're approaching my vehicle on the highway. And I'm not just talking about the people who forget that they've even got them on, you know, and they just drive right on past you with their high beams on. I'm also talking about people who don't seem to understand that it's not just that you need to turn them off at some point before you pass another vehicle. There is a respectable distance where you ought to turn them off. And I'm telling you, it's more than 25 yards away. Now, I know, I know, this stuff bothers me more than it should. It's just the perceived disrespect and the irony of someone wanting to have such a clear view of the roadway for themselves that I am effectively blinded for a few moments. And if I'm not careful to to actually look away, I have to drive another 30 seconds or so with those big giant spots blocking my vision, you know, until they fade away. Again, all of this so that the other person, the other driver, can see just as clearly as possible. But enough about me. Let's talk about Saul, (laughs) or as he is better known, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knows what I'm talking about. This morning, our last story from the road is about a time when he was traveling a road just outside of Damascus and had to deal with some blinding light for himself. So this morning's message is called High Beams on the Highway, and we're going to read about it in Acts chapter 9. Uh, We also have additional accounts in the Bible of of this event in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, but we're going to start this morning by reading the account in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So crack open those Bibles to Acts chapter 9, follow along with me, read along with me in your Bible, Acts chapter 9, again starting in verse 1. Luke records this event this way. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now, this is a fascinating story in every sense of the word. It's interesting, it's exciting, but more importantly, there's a lot to be learned here. And that's why you hear so many sermons preached from this text. That's why you hear so many lessons taught from this text. But this morning, in this final message from our Stories from the Road series, we're not going to look at the typical lessons on baptism or the, the moment a person is converted or even how Paul became an apostle or became qualified to be an apostle. Those are all incredible lessons that this text teaches us about. But I want to look at what we learn here from Jesus. In each story from the road that we've looked at so far, Jesus has played the leading role. It's been Jesus on the road, Jesus doing the healing, Jesus doing the teaching. The the focus has been on Jesus. And while this story seems to usually place the emphasis on Paul or even Ananias at times, we are going to continue looking at what can be learned from Jesus on the road here. So today, the first lesson that we can learn from Jesus and that we should learn from Jesus is this. Do unto the church as you would do unto the Lord. Do unto the church as you would do unto the Lord. Now, here's how we discover this lesson in our story today. In our text, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Luke writes, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what Saul was doing to the church. He was so bent on torturing and imprisoning members of the Lord's church that Luke describes him as breathing threats and murder, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's a description of someone who is not only violently opposed to the church, but someone who is personally and zealously angry, breathing threats and murder. And so Saul went to the high priest to get what was effectively a blanket warrant to take into custody anyone who was a Christian, or as it was often called at this time, those belonging to the way. 
You see, Saul wasn't just content to drive Christianity out of Jerusalem after Stephen's death. He was apparently willing to travel to see to it that this way was stamped out completely. This right here, all of this is what Saul was doing to the church. Now, look at verses 3 through 5 again, and this time make sure you're paying close attention to the question that Jesus asks in verse 4 and the statement that he makes in verse 5. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5 said, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, and this is Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, this is Jesus's response, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, notice Jesus points out what Saul has been doing, right? In both the, the Jesus's question and his statement to Saul, he mentions the persecuting that Saul has been so zealously involved in. Remember, that's what Saul has been doing to the church. But in Jesus's question, he asks Saul why he's been persecuting him. And in his statement, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is Jesus making it evident that what is done to his body here on earth, the church, is effectively done to him. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the time to read all of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, but you should write that down and read that passage thoroughly. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus is speaking about the reality of the the final judgment. And again, he makes it clear that our treatment of other human beings on this earth can and will be considered as deeds done to Jesus himself. Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats. And he says that he'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. And he says those on his right are those who are blessed by his father. He says they are the ones who will be ushered into the kingdom, prepared for them. And Jesus says the reason that they are blessed and invited to inherit the kingdom is because they fed him when he was hungry and they gave him a drink when he was thirsty and they showed him hospitality when he was a stranger. They clothed him when he had no clothes. They visited him when he was sick and they came to him when he was in prison. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Jesus clarifies what he means when he says that these people did these wonderful things for him. In verse 40, he says, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Likewise, in verse 45, Jesus explains why the goats on his left will be separated eternally from him and sent to the eternal fire. He says, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You see, our interaction with one another is something that is very personal to Jesus, literally. Jesus literally takes it personally. Imagine the kind of church that we would be if we consciously thought of what we did for or to one another as deeds done for or to Jesus Christ himself. But I don't mean to say that this is just a way to improve the church. It's more than that. As Jesus says, without any lack of clarity, our treatment of others is a matter of eternal life or death. It's a matter of heaven or hell. Mistreat others? Hell. Intentionally fail others? Hell. Abuse others? Hell. Simply ignore others and selfishly live for yourself? Hell. Live, love, and serve like Jesus? Heaven. Brothers and sisters, do unto the church as you would do unto the Lord.
The second lesson that we learn from Jesus in Acts chapter 9 is this. Simply do as the Lord commands. Simply do as the Lord commands. This lesson can be seen, first of all, in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, when Jesus says to Saul, get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Make sure you hear that command. Make sure you hear both parts of that command, all the details. He says, get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now, we know that Saul got up. He did as he was told. He went into Damascus. When we're considering obeying a command from the Lord, I think we have this natural tendency to to kind of question what, what, what might come next if we obey. If I go and tell my neighbor about Jesus, will it make things awkward forever after that? Or best case scenario, if I win them to Christ, you know, will they start coming to me with all their Bible questions and find out that I don't know everything? Now, I know that that might be an extreme example. Emphasis on might. That might be an extreme example, but I think our minds play little games like this and complicate things. We need simple obedience. Saul was told what to do now and that he would then be told what to do later, you know, after he had obeyed. (laughs) Just like Jesus told Saul, we first need to go and do what we know we need to do. There are so many commands in Scripture that apply to us right now, commands that you and I know that we ought to be obeying right now. There are situations that each of us are in at this very moment where we know what the right thing to do is, and we need to obey God's Word in those situations that we are in right now. And then we need to be ready to obey the Word of the Lord based on whatever happens after that. We're not going to receive some special instructions through a new revelation from God. We're not going to hear from him audibly. Our response is still going to be based on God's written word. But like Saul, we have to first simply obey in the situation that we're in now, knowing that regardless of what may happen next, God will provide the way forward. And we also see this lesson of of our need to simply do as the Lord commands uh, in verse 11 with Ananias. In verse 11, the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, we know that Ananias went where the Lord commanded. He also, like Saul, went where he was told to go. And we know that Ananias said and did as the Lord commanded him to say and do. And through his simple obedience, Ananias became something incredibly important, right? Incredibly significant, didn't he? Verse 11, remember said that Saul was praying? Ananias, through his simple obedience, became the Lord's answer to Saul's prayers. Now, doesn't that put an interesting spin on simply obeying the Lord's commands? Obey, and you very well may be used by the Lord to answer someone's prayers. Now, that's not to say that you're being put up on some special pedestal. That is simply saying that you are obeying in such a way that God can use you to carry out his purposes so that he is glorified. And what honest-hearted Christian doesn't want to do that? Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man 
who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. There are so many great benefits to simply honoring Jesus as Lord by simply doing as he commands. You're glorifying God. You could be the answer to someone else's prayers. And you're building a firm foundation for your life so that when life's inevitable storms come along, your faith cannot be shaken. The third and final lesson that we learn from Jesus here in Acts chapter 9 is this. Do not assume someone cannot be converted. Do not assume someone cannot be converted. I want to ask you this. What kind of person was Saul when Jesus put his high beams on him? Well, verses 1 and 2 of our text gave us a brief description. Remember, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 said that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, that's just a snapshot of the kind of life that Saul was leading at the time. But we know that Saul was converted to Christ. Verses 17 and 18 of our text told us, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Saul, a zealous and murderous persecutor of the Lord's church, converted to Christ. And I want you to note the fact that Saul was not converted to Christ by Christ himself. Jesus did not appear to Saul to save him. Acts chapter 26 verse 16 quotes Jesus as saying to Saul, for this purpose I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the thing which you have seen, but also to the thing in which I will appear to you. Jesus had these special purposes for Saul, and he appeared to him to appoint him, to tell him about this. But it was Ananias's job to go and tell Saul how to be saved, how to have his sins washed away, how to call upon the name of the Lord. The Great Commission was given to us, disciples of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, and he rose from the grave. Now it is our role as his disciples to go and preach the gospel to to all creation, and to baptize new disciples into Christ. Certainly there is more for us to do than just that, but these are duties that are specially and specifically ours. God has entrusted us with the message that Romans 1.16 says is his own power for salvation. God has entrusted us with a message that he says is his, God's power for salvation. But I know that there are certain prospects that we'd love to proclaim the message to, but we have these genuine reservations, these these hesitations because of the kind of person that they are. I get it. I really do. Maybe they have a negative attitude. Maybe they speak with hostility towards spiritual things. Maybe they've had a, a bad experience with religion. Maybe they recently lost someone they love. Maybe they're wealthy. Maybe they're powerful. Maybe they're part of a culture that's nothing like your own. Maybe they actively oppose Christianity. Think about the person who seems impossible to talk to about Jesus. Think about the person in your circle of influence who seems impossible to reach. The person who seems impossible to convince. 
Now, before we write them off as unsavable, let's honestly ask ourselves, are they Saul? Are they as bad? More importantly, are they worse? Now, you and I both know the answer to that question. So if Saul could be one for Christ, so can your neighbor, so can your coworker, so can your cousin, your in-laws, your doctor, your bank teller, your mail deliverer, and anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will be one, but I can assure you of this, no one will be one to Christ if they don't hear about Jesus from us. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If God's word says the gospel is his power to save everyone, it is a legitimate tragedy for us to assume that there's anyone who absolutely cannot be converted. Church, let's go. Let's go and proclaim the message of life. As we finish things up here today, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now the most important question that any of us could ever be asked. It's a question that each and every single one of us needs to be able to answer honestly. Here's the question. If the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts, that you'd go to live with him forever? I mean, do you know for certain that he's going to let you into heaven? Can a person even know? In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John writes that we can know. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Scripture says that there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to get in trouble when Jesus returns. Somebody's going to pay. Now, who did this passage of scripture say was going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed here. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you know God, but have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel. Now, before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is obviously the power of God for salvation, but, but what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he's going to tell us what that gospel is, what that message is. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. 
The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? Well, I want to read Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, did you catch that? When we are baptized, the Bible says we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead so that we too will walk in newness of life. Now, before we can obey the gospel, we must believe the gospel. We must believe that Jesus did what the Bible says he did for us. We need to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. The Bible says that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who would come to save us from our sins. He is the son of the living God. He himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. And he is God the son who came to earth in human form. We must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism, where we are immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is where we are baptized into Christ's death, into his burial, and raised up to newness of life by the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from death. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Acts chapter 22, verse 16, make it clear that at our baptism, our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3, verse 21 says, baptism saves us. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 teaches us that through faith and as a result of our baptism, we become children of God, clothed with Christ. Let me ask you again, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure no doubts that you would go to live with him forever. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions that you have. We would sincerely appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, just keep listening and we'll tell you in just a moment how you can get in touch with us.
You've just listened to the current sermon from Liberty Christian Church, the very same sermon that you would have heard today in person at Liberty. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 6 p.m., and I'd love to encourage you to come to both services. Our address is 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. And if you'd like to call us, just call 812-273-1518. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that directly from our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Remember, we love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.